Acts chapter 2. So, I think tonight we will be able to, uh, to finish up our, uh, our time in the book of Acts. Which brings to the end this historical phase of our studies. In that when we were going through the Old Testament we were looking pre- predominantly historically at God did this, God did this, God did this. And then we came to the prophets saying this will happen. And then when we came to the Gospels we came back and we were historical again. We were looking at the progression through the Gospels and into Acts. And then last week we were looked at a very, very significant uh, study in Acts chapter 2. And I think that lots of the loose threads we had were tied together. And if you were away and you haven't heard that yet, I would encourage you uh, to catch up so that you're there. Um, And really now I just want to, to finish going through the book of Acts. And there are four key passages here regarding the giving of the Spirit. And I think this will tie up a few more loose ends. Um, so the first of the four is back to Acts 2 again. Um, back to Acts 2, we'll, we'll recap a little bit. And in Acts chapter 2, we see them gathered on the Feast of Pentecost. That's a Jewish feast, as I said. It was a feast that already existed, that they, uh, that they were celebrating. We now con- con- connect Pentecost um, with the giving of the Spirit, but it was also always there, and the Feast of Weeks also known as and they're gathered in one place and um, let's just go back a tiny bit because last week we had a lot of little details to cover and I want to just make sure we finish this passage off when it says they were all together who were they and now contextually you're going to need to go back a little bit so the previous passage is the the disciples the apostles choosing who will be the 12th apostle to replace um, Judas, who had died, who had hung himself, who betrayed Jesus. And the passage ends with uh, they cast lots in, uh, for them, and the lots fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now let's not get into that today, because... That is a heavy issue. My personal view is that they should have kept their noses out of it, that they're applying Old Testament and Old Covenant rules when they should be waiting for the New Covenant era to come. And I think God made very clear who his replacement was in the Apostle Paul. Um, So I'm very much in the camp of people who believe that Paul uh, is the 12th Apostle and that Matthias really wasn't appointed by God at all. He was simply appointed by the... uh, the remaining disciples who pulled sticks when they shouldn't have done. So that, that's my view on that. But anyway, the point is that in this passage, they cast lots is a reference to the apostles and the disciples. And it is they who are gathered together in one place. And they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in other tongues. And there were dwelling, verse 5, in Jerusalem, um, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them in his own language. Now, we've covered most of this, but let's kind of, let's just be clear on a few details here. Firstly, there was a private meeting of the Jewish disciples. And it is they who spoke in tongues. 
And when they are speaking in tongues, and I think more pointedly, when we have this whoosh rushing in. Remember, Exodus chapter 40. The wind rushes in, the smoke fills the tabernacle. Moses can't do his job. They can't do anything in the tabernacle because the glory of God has filled the place. It was very dramatic and loud and the presence of God is very obviously there. Then in 1 Kings and chapter, uh, chapter 8, when the temple is inaugurated, we have exactly the same thing. The, the, high pri the, the priests can't do their job because of the presence of God rushing in and coming in. And here in Acts chapter 2, there is this big rushing of wind and mighty rushing wind. Not just a rushing wind, a mighty rushing wind. This is, you know, this is essentially a storm happening in a house. That's got to be a little bit bizarre, right? And it made a noise. And so there are people who are in Jerusalem for the feast. And they come to hear what the commotion is. I think sometimes Christians don't have this picture of how the events work themselves out. And these Jews who had come, and they were Jews, but they were Jews from other regions. And they come to Jerusalem for the feast. And they would speak Hebrew, and they would speak, um, some of them would speak Greek. And they, there, were, there was a lot of uh, bilingual people in that area. They would speak Aramaic. In fact, Aramaic was really the tongue rather than Hebrew, but they would read uh, Hebrew. And they, so they'd speak Aramaic at the very least. But they came from other regions and they would speak the native tongue of that region as well. In the same way that, for example, a second generation Mexican family who've emigrated to America would, typically speaking, be able to speak in English as it's the, the language of the country they've come to and they'll also speak in Spanish because that's their, their native tongue from where they've come from. Um, and, and so in a similar kind of way they would speak various languages and it is then those people who come to hear the commotion who when they hear this preaching hear it in their own dialect and they hear it in their own language now the thing we know about these apostles and these disciples is that they are all Jewish now everything that we've seen so far remember what we've seen here that Jesus said that the Spirit is not yet uh, in, he is with you but he's not yet in you he is with them in the sense he was in Christ and Christ was the temple fulfilling the role of a temple and then when he, at the end of John's Gospel he breathes on them and says receive the Holy Spirit he's indicating this change into new covenant relationship this John kind of concludes with this this new covenant shift where they will now be the temples but the actuality of it happening, rather than just a symbolic indication of it, the actual happening of it is here in Acts 2. So this is the beginning of the church. This is where, like the tabernacles inaugurated in Exodus 40, now uh, the temples inaugurated in 1 Kings 8, the church is inaugurated in Acts chapter 2. And here in the church, not everybody there is speaking in different languages but the apostles are they are speaking in different languages most people who are there are observers not participants that's important to know and they are the ones witnessing what's going on but the church begins in this place because the spirit has been given now to the church 
And it is being administered by these apostles and by these, these disciples, these people who, as we know from our studies in Ephesians in the mornings, are the foundation of the church. And they hear it in their own language. We talked about this in detail last time. And Peter explains that this is what is going on. It's what Joel spoke about. There is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has now been given, or, or Joel is speaking about the Spirit being given to everyone. Now, there are distinctions between what happened in Acts 2 and what happened in Joel. We spoke about that at length last time. Most of what Joel said would happen didn't happen in Acts 2. And most of what happened in Acts 2 didn't, wasn't prophesied by Joel. The simple connection that they're making here, that, Pete, that Peter's making here, is that Joel speaks of an outpouring of the Spirit that will happen at the end times. And here too, there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There is the giving of the Holy Spirit en masse to a whole bunch of people. Now, notice that the tongue speaking is very limited. But what is also very important to note, and this is where we didn't get quite so far, is that if you skip all the way to the end of his sermon, Verse 40, well let's read from verse 37 because it's quite a cool ending. When they, heard and they were, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, convicted by the Spirit working. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you. And now notice how the baptism is now shifting. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins... And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. These people are Jews. What did we also notice about them, other than them being Jews and them being from different regions? They were devout. Now that's important. That's very, 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 very important. These are not unbelieving Jews who don't care about the things of God and basically are um, what we would call unbelievers. We've spoken, haven't we, about how the Jews were the people of God and they were circumcised to distinguish them. They had these laws that distinguished them. But they still had to be circumcised in the flesh. Um, sorry, they're circumcised in the flesh. They have to be circumcised in the heart. They have to be born again. They have to believe by faith so that they can be saved. Right? But these guys aren't the unbelieving Jews. They're not these people who make up the Jewish numbers, religious people who aren't circumcised in their hearts. These we're specifically told are devout men. These are people who are believers in God. And notice what they have to do. They have to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, when he says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, does that imply that they are unsaved? Now, most people would say, yes, that does imply that they're unsaved. But that's looking at it from a non-chronological, non-progressive, non-historical perspective. It's looking at it like we've been trying to avoid doing this whole series, looking at it from the perspective of the New Testament living that we have now, and looking back. From their perspective, there seems, the text seems to indicate that they're devout and that they're believing. But what they need to do now is they need to associate their faith, not as they had to do in the past to be saved, 
with believing in God and believing that he, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, believing in, in, his, in his message that the coming Messiah and what have you. But they now needed to believe not just that there is a Messiah who is going to come, but that he has come and that specifically he is Jesus Christ. And that he died for the forgiveness of their sins. You're saying, but why is he talking about them being baptized for the forgiveness of, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins if they've already been saved? Well, the answer is, is that saved people in the old covenant had to go for forgiveness of their sins every year at atonement. There's a whole sacrificial system in place. But what's happening now is not that these people are being taken out of darkness into light in a sort of salvation sense. I think what's happening here is these people are being taken from old covenant to new covenant. And this baptism is a baptism into Christ, specifically recognizing that he is the Messiah. And now there is a forgiveness of sins that comes with Jesus that replaces that old covenant system. In other words, and, be, and hear this carefully, the faith they had that saved them is the same faith that is progressing them from an old covenant relationship to a new covenant relationship. From an old covenant relationship to a new covenant relationship. And so we, as Christians today, who would preach, come to Jesus for forgiveness of your sins, which is a genuine offer because we're offering a new covenant relationship because that's what's available today. We look back and we see that as an offer of salvation. But at that time, that offering of a new covenant relationship was something that hadn't been offered before. It couldn't have been offered before because the Spirit hadn't come. And now the Spirit has come. And so the first thing Peter does is says, hey, come be part of this. And they become part of it en masse. And we're going to see that now. There were, um, we'll, come, we'll see that in a minute. But there's this massive salvation, we think. But I think rather than seeing it as a massive salvation, I know I'm in the minority here, don't get me wrong, but... Rather than seeing this as a massive salvation and a successful evangelism, this is actually the fruit of the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptized people, and he baptized people and along the lines of, repent because the Messiah is coming. And the idea was, is that people who were genuine believers, had faith in God, and were devout, were circumcised in their heart, were born again, that they would recognize the Messiah when he came. And now, the Spirit's been given, the new covenant is here. The one, remember what John said in his ministry, John the Baptist said, he said, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me who's going to do what? Baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And so here are these Jewish people, devout Jewish people, the sort of devout Jewish people who got baptized by John the Baptist. And these devout Jewish people are being offered to be part of that new covenant relationship. And we should not be surprised that so many are, are receiving of that offer because John said this is exactly how it was going to be. If you're believers, then you're going to get baptized in the Spirit. Because that's what's going to happen to all believers. So I don't think that any devout Jew, and, and hear this clearly, I don't think any devout Jew who was circumcised in their heart could have rejected Jesus as a Messiah. Don't believe it's possible. It, if, you, if you're saved then you will recognize your Messiah. The reason that Israel did, as a whole didn't recognize their Messiah is because they weren't saved. 
So that might have blown a few minds tonight. He says, repent of me baptized, you receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children. And that's what we saw in all our prophets, wasn't it? That the promise, what promise? The promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the new covenant, is for you, Jews, and your children. But here's the twister. And also, it is for all who are far off, and everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. Doesn't that have echoes of, uh, or rather, I guess Ephesians has echoes of this in it, doesn't it? God calling those who are his, be they Jew or Gentile, into the one new body. Verse 40, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. He said, well, surely that is a, is a plea for salvation. No, 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 no. Which generation are we talking about here? We're talking about this generation of Israel. And what do we know about this generation of Israel? That this is the generation of Israel. We saw this in our study. Was it last week or the week before? But we saw it in one of our series anyway, didn't we? Either last, last week or the week before. That the, this generation of Israel is the generation that committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in that they rejected the Messiahship of Jesus when he was there in the flesh. And that sin that was committed by the nation was unforgivable. Individuals could still be saved, but the course of action for that nation was now irrevocable. So even then on Palm Sunday, when they welcomed him and said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus says, Oh, I wish I could gather you as, as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I wish I could do it, but I can't because it's too late. That, that offer's gone. I'm now going to the cross. We're now going for the new covenant. And so, um, this generation of Israel is a wicked and crooked generation. As Jesus said, the, 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 the people of Sodom and Gomorrah will rise up and condemn this generation. This generation is going to have it worse. This generation is the generation of Israel who had the covenants, had the promises, had the prophecies, and had the Messiah and said, we don't want you, you're of the devil. That generation was going to be punished more greatly than the generation of Jeremiah's day. And that generation was going to end up, as Jesus said, with the, with the parable, the story of the man whose spirit left and the seven others came back. They were going to end up in a worse condition than they begun in. They were going to end up not just under Roman rule, but with their city and their temple destroyed and with the people scattered across the world. And what, what, Paul, what Peter is saying to them here is, save yourselves from this wicked generation. Don't be numbered with them and don't suffer the fate that they suffer. And they didn't suffer that fate. And by the way, for the record, some of those very awkward passages in the book of Hebrews that seems to suggest that when a person turns back, turns away, they can't be saved again, that people will use to preach that you can lose your salvation. I think many of those warnings in Hebrews are warnings of physical salvation, not spiritual salvation. Jesus told them, when you see in the Mount of Olives, the, the Olivia Discourse, he told them, when you see the city surrounded, what do you do? Flee to the mountains. What happened chronologically? What happened was the Romans laid siege, surrounded the city. So what are you going to do, believers in Jesus? Flee to the mountains. Uh, but you can't, because the city is surrounded by Romans. And then what happened, historically, is the Romans ran out of supplies. The Jews basically bunkered up longer than they, they, they counted for. So the Romans went away and all the Jews go, yeah, yeah, we've made it. 
And so what are you going to do? You've, 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 you, they've gone away. You're okay, right? All the Christians said, Jesus told us, flee to the mountains. They fled. They left. And those who didn't, those who didn't want to leave their countrymen, those who didn't want to leave their city, those who didn't want to, they, who wanted to be numbered with their countrymen, what happened to them? The Romans came back and the city was destroyed and sacked and burnt and people were killed and raped and it was horrendous. But the Christians had fled, or the bulk of them anyway. So save yourself from this crooked generation is distinguish yourself as believers, as circumcised in the heart, show yourself to be that way and distinguish yourself from this generation. I hope that all kind of fits in a bit more. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added. It doesn't say saved, it was added. Added to their number. A number of what? Well, a number of people in the church. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and be a little bit different than the average commentator and say that I don't think 3,000 people were saved. Then perhaps I would go the opposite way and say nobody was saved. I'm going to say that 3,000 were added to the church because what happened is that these people illustrated what happens to devout, God-fearing, believing Jews who are presented with their Messiah. And this is what happens. We'll come back to this point at the end tonight. But that's what happened. They were added and then they devoted themselves, next verse, to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Notice, not everybody is doing wonders and signs. It is simply through the apostles. How many apostles do we have today? We have none because they are the foundation of the church as we see in Ephesians 2.20. So I hope lots of these kind of things we talked about mornings and evenings are all kind of lining up together. But what has happened here is that Peter has presented this, this message of new covenant believing through faith in Jesus Christ. They have faith in God, but now they have faith in Jesus Christ. I think they were saved, but now they have the Spirit. And he says, do baptize for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, this is important. Those 3,000 people received the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? Where is the passage that tells us that they were all speaking in different languages? There isn't one. Where is the passage that says that they started doing all sorts of different, wonderful, weird or wacky things that somehow indicated that they've received the Holy Spirit? There isn't one. The apostles spoke in tongues, indicating that they had received the Holy Spirit on behalf of the Jewish people, and then the rest of the Jews come into the church, the rest of the believing Jews come into the church, and it is a given, it is a presumed, it is assumed that now that they have faith in Jesus Christ, that they too have the Holy Spirit that the apostles had. And the apostles exhibited these, this gift of tongues, this gift of speaking other languages, human languages that could be understood and translated by those who naturally knew those human languages. But nobody else did that at this point that we know. In fact, the only indication of, the, of these people being different from receiving the Holy Spirit is that they devote themselves to the church and there was awe that came upon them. They're basically hung up on Jesus. 
There is an empowerment for the rest of them, but it seems to come in their devotion and their expression of their own gifts and their own contributions, rather than there being one gift in particular, as is falsely taught by certain wings of the church. So that's what happened in Acts chapter 2. I think we kind of wrap that up now, hopefully. I hope that's clear for you. And it's a very different picture than is often presented. And um, so the Jews who were promised the Holy Spirit, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 37, 36, we've, these books that we've been through, these prophecies, Joel chapter 2. And, and, and just to wrap up Acts chapter 2, as I was saying, Joel says, I will pour out my spirit. Peter says, this is what happened. And on this day, the Spirit of God didn't come upon one or two or eleven. The Spirit of God came upon 3,000 plus people. That's not a coming upon, that's a pouring out. That's what Peter spoke about. A mass outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the people. And as we know retrospectively, this Spirit will now never leave them. But I'm not sure that they all understood that at that point. Unless they knew their Old Testament very well. Perhaps the disciples did, but, but certainly um, the, uh, the, the, all the regular people necessarily wouldn't. Now, let's now turn to the next similar incident, which is Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And here we have a gentleman in chapter 8 called Saul, who we better know as Paul. And when Stephen is stoned, chapter 8, at the end of chapter 7, chapter 8 begins by saying, and Saul approved of his execution. Oh boy, how things change in the book of Acts, eh? We mentioned that this morning. Anyway, so there's great persecution against the church in Jerusalem at the hand of Paul. I don't want to get distracted, but I will say something about it in a minute. Because it's kind of cool. Um, there's a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the apostles are staying in Jerusalem, but these people, like the 3,000, and these other people who have been saved, who have actually been saved, people who weren't God-fearing, devout believers, have now become believers in Christ, and the people who were devout, who have now come into new covenant relationship in the church, that these people, most of them are fleeing. And it says they're fleeing. Here's Jerusalem in the middle. They're fleeing out into the region of Judea. And then they're going out beyond Judea to Samaria. They're going to Samaria. So the Jews are going out. Okay. Um, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered, that's those people that we saw, those people who were fleeing persecution, they went about preaching the word. So there they are, they were in Jerusalem, there's now Paul, or Saul, as we know, but Saul there, who's, who's literally dragging people by the hair out of their houses, throwing them into prison, so they're fleeing. Now we've got to get out of this place, we've got to leave. So they go out, they go to Judea, they go to Samaria, and as they go, they're preaching the word, they're preaching the message of Christ. And Philip 
went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip and they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And so in the same way that Jesus did miracles as he was proclaiming the word, so Philip is doing miracles as he proclaims the word and he takes it to Samaria and there's a whole bunch of joy there. Remember, there's a bunch of believers in Samaria already. We know that from John chapter 4. And uh, those believers were told, what, were the, what was John chapter, they told in John chapter 4? This woman was told that if you're thirsty, I could give you water and you wouldn't thirst again. And that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. But she hasn't received the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit wasn't given until Acts chapter 2. And the Spirit was given to these believers. And I think that every other devout Jew who came in and what have you would have been baptized and would have received the Spirit as well. And they'd have been associated with the church. But until Acts chapter 8, there's no word of the gospel as we understand the gospel. Then what, what, how, what is the gospel? As we understand it, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, it's that Jesus died, he was buried, on the third day he was rose again, right? For the, forgive, for our, uh, the forgiveness of our sins. Now, that wasn't the message that the Samaritan woman heard. Because Jesus hadn't died because he was talking to her. So there, were, there are, in the same way that there were devout believing Jews who hadn't become part of new covenant relationship, there were devout believing Samaritans, believers in Jesus Christ even, who didn't believe in the gospel because the gospel hadn't happened to have been presented and therefore they couldn't have the spirit because the spirit couldn't be given until Jesus had been glorified. Right? So that's the situation in Samaria. Now, here's the one little thing I was going to tell you about Paul, which is kind of neat. We always think, of course, about Jesus meeting Paul on the Damascus Road and saying, as we said this morning, I have a job for you, Paul, and I'm choosing you, and I will glorify, this, this was this morning's sermon in a sense, wasn't it? I'm going to glorify myself through you by choosing you, redeeming you by the blood of my son, that's those that you're persecuting, you know, the, that one that you're persecuting, his people, and redeem you through him, give you the Holy Spirit, the sign of the seal of a new covenant, and you will have the Holy Spirit, and then I will do it because I have a work for you to do, and as we saw in our sermon this morning, that work was him having, being an apostle and a prophet, and the revelation being given to him uniquely of this Jew-Gentile church being formed. Yeah? And that's how God glorified himself through Paul, right? Kind of. Before Paul was saved, God still used him and he still glorified himself through him. We are specifically told in the text twice that Paul specifically, Saul as he is referred to here by his Jewish name, that Saul specifically, it was his persecution that was leading to people fleeing. And when they fled, they took the gospel with them. Those Jews that were happy where they were, in their own churches, doing their own thing, with their own people, that they were comfortable with, they would have happily stayed there. And God glorified himself through Paul. And even more ironic than that, 
is that the very thing that God had called Paul to do, one new church, one new body, Jew and Gentile together, Paul had started work on that project even before he was saved because God, against his will, without him even being aware of it, was using Paul to get the gospel to the Jews, uh, the Jews further afield, to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles, getting that gospel out and away from Jerusalem, and that's creating this, bre- this broadening of the church. And Paul was a catalyst to that happening before he was even saved. And that's really what Romans 9 is about. God chose us so that he might glorify himself through us by saving us. And giving us his spirit. Paul chose Pharaoh to harden his heart so that he would glorify himself through Pharaoh. God has his will and he will glorify himself. That's the power and the sovereignty of God. I, I love this. I love how Paul was doing God's work for him, unbeknownst to him, when he was trying to do the exact opposite. Let's take comfort in that, folks. When people think they're harming the work of God, God's got control of it all the way through. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, so we haven't really got to the point of Acts 8. Let's keep trying to go. So we have this incident with a magician called Simon, and we'll skim over that. Um, And then in verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent down to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now stop right there. Okay. Couple of things. Firstly, the apostles have heard, word has come to them, that the gospel has gone to the Samaritans and that they're getting saved, right? They don't seem to have a big problem with this, and they send Peter and John to go to them and encouraging this mission. Now, we know that the Jews had an issue with the Samaritans, and they're going to pray that they would receive the Spirit, so they're obviously going to make them part of this new covenant relationship and to have them as part of that church. Wouldn't they have a problem with that? Why don't they have a problem with that? John chapter 4. They've already seen Samaritan salvation on a significant scale through the ministry of the Samaritan woman of the well. They, who had their minds closed to such a thing as Samaritans being saved, had their eyes opened by Jesus already. They're going back to friends, as it were, in a, to, to a degree. So it's not such a, an emotional and mental hurdle for them to overcome. And that's why they're willing to go. So that's one problem resolved. The other one is... Why is it that they need to go to pray that they receive the Holy Spirit? If these people, I mean, listen to what, what, what we're told about them. They've received the word. They've, they've been saved. What, what, what do you mean they need to receive the Spirit? They've had the gospel preached to them. The gospel, right? They've had the gospel. Jesus died. He's now died. He's been buried. He's now been buried. And he rose again. He's risen again. So they've got the gospel message. When the word's going out, they're getting the full deal. They're getting a gospel message. Okay? So when they're doing that, and they're seeing these things happen, why is it that there seems to be a need for them to receive the Holy Spirit? The answer, keep a finger in Acts 8, we're going to go right, right, right back there, is in Matthew chapter 16.
Now this is a passage I will not get distracted by, or we will not get any further tonight. Questions on Matthew 16 can be done at a later time. Verse 13, now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. Remember what that means, that means Messiah. You're the one that the prophets prophesied the Messiah would be. You are the Messiah the son of the living God. That's the son of God is, is a messianic term as well. So they recognize who he is. And Jesus said to him, answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay? Is there, can there be any doubt that Peter was saved? He believed that Jesus was Messiah. He believed in who he was. And Jesus responds to that faith by saying, God himself, God the Father, revealed this to you. This is, this is a saved man. And I tell you, you are Peter, um, sorry, verse, yeah, verse 19. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And before anyone thinks that means he's going to build the church on Peter, he's not building the church on Peter. Uh, the word Peter means, uh, doesn't mean rock, it means pebble. Um, his ne- some servants will talk about how you know his nickname. He's called Peter, meaning Rocky. You know, and then Rocky. So if you ever seen the Flintstones, he means pebbles, which was a name of someone from the Flintstones, one of the kids from the Flintstones, as I recall. Um, and in that place, there was a huge, big rock face, and that is what he's referring to. Upon this rock, I will build my church. So, in other words, you have believed and you have faith, but you're insignificant. But what you have stated, what you have said, your faith, as it were, on this, I will build my church. That's what he's talking about. Um, And I will build my church on that faith in who Christ is, which is what we're seeing in the book of Acts, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you, I will give you, in the Greek, that you is a singular you, not a plural you. It is not to the disciples in general. It is to Peter in the singular. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly told the disciples to tell no one that he was a Christ. We're not going there tonight. The point is this. That Peter, and Peter alone, was given the keys to the kingdom. He had authority to bind and loose. Which basically meant that he had the authority with the keys of the kingdom, to make these binding decisions. You want to come into the kingdom? Who gets, a, gets into the kingdom? Who's going to be allowed in? Who's going to have a place at the kingdom? Well, who's got access? Who's got the entry point? Peter. Whenever you see those silly cartoons about St. Peter being at the pearly gates, you know, going to heaven and Peter's at the pearly gates, where does that sort of traditional superstitious nonsense come from? It comes from here. Peter has the gate to the kingdom. So the idea is you go to heaven and I'm not going to let you in. Well, Peter's the one at the gates letting you in or not. That's not how it worked out. Acts chapter 8 is how it worked out. Here are the Samaritan people. The church, Jesus has sent the Spirit. The Spirit of God has been received by devout Jews. Jews have now become part of the church. The church is 100% Jewish. Now the disciples may be favourable towards Samaritans because of their experiences, but the rest of the Jews certainly won't be. 
Are they going to be allowed to be part of that church? They've got their own temple for crying out loud. They don't even worship in the right place. These are half-breeds. What's the, what's the word I'm looking for, Phoebe? Muggles. Half-bloods. Mudbloods. These are, these are people who are they're not, they're half-Jews. They're not proper Jews. They, they compromise. They, 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 are, they are disgusting to us. The rest of the Jewish world won't accept this. So what happens is they send Peter and John who go and pray for them that they, they, know, they might not receive a spirit. For he, that's the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen. Listen to this carefully. Not yet fallen on, same Old Testament word, same thing, this, this experience we've been tracking right the way through this series, but it's now happening in the New Testament with permanency upon all believers. He says he was not fallen on any of you. When the Spirit fell on the Jews on the day of Pentecost, there was a manifestation in a few. And there is no indication from any of them that the Spirit has come to them. So, um, they prayed, they received the Holy Spirit, and they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they had received baptism, they had been baptized in Jesus, they had received the Gospel, and then in verse 17 what happens is, they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money. That's Simon, who's the magician that's been referred to earlier. And he wants the power that whoever he lays his hands on will receive a spirit. And then Peter rebukes him and says, repent of this wickedness and, and what have you. Um, and they go on and they preach the gospel to the Samaritans. Now notice, we are not specifically told here we're not specifically told here what indication there was that they received the Holy Spirit. It is presumed almost universally that there was speaking in different languages because that's what had happened in Acts chapter 2. Partly because that's what happened in Acts chapter 2 and partly because what we're going to see in a couple of chapters time. I wonder if there needed to be anything at all. The apostles had no issue with the fact that they're going to be part of the church, but they recognized, and let me just say for argument's sake, they probably did speak, some of them spoke in different languages. There was some indication they received the Spirit. Because Simon certainly saw something, and he certainly wanted it. And that's perhaps the other indication. But here is, here is an occasion where the Samaritans now have it. And they had to have Peter and John come and lay hands on them. Why? Because Peter had the keys to the kingdom. He is, in Acts chapter 8, is opening the doors of the kingdom to the Samaritan people. How many other times in the book of Acts, or later, or anywhere else, do we see Samaritans having the Spirit come upon them en masse and having some sort of manifestation that would cause a magician to say, oh, I want to be able to do this trick too? And the answer is never. Never happened again. Why? Because the Samaritans have now come into the kingdom. It has manifested in some way, shape or form. The magician guy wants to be able to do that trick as well. And there is some way or shape or form, probably languages, that the Spirit has manifested and, and you know, Simon wants to be able to do this trick, but it's not his to do. Peter has welcomed in these people. And, and the, the rebuking of Simon is because, careful how I word this, the rebuking of Simon is something that much of the charismatic church today really needs to hear. 
Because they saw the, the manifestation of the Spirit. And he said, oh, I want to repeat that. That's good. People are going to like that. And, Peter, and Peter's like, you totally missed the point. This is a group of people who have now, who have been ostracized from Jewish society for centuries. Who are now part of the church. And you're looking at someone speaking in a different language? You're missing the point completely. The, the ma manifestation is simply showing you that they have the same spirit and they're part of the same church. And what we've accomplished today is we've welcomed in a group of people that were separate from us and they have now become united with us in Christ. Those who were maybe not far off but a little way off have now been reunited with their Jewish heritage and have come together in this one new man, the church. Which, by the way, Paul is going to understand. They didn't fully understand at this point. But Paul has brought this about. And the charismatic church today does exactly the same thing. It says, we want this cool stuff that looks cool. Oh, look shiny, cool, look shiny, cool. It's kind of like someone seeing an engagement ring and simply looking at it as monetary value. A thief coming into your home going into your drawer, pulling out your rings and saying, oh, that one's got a diamond, I'm going to have that one, that'll get me some money. And when the person comes back, they're devastated, not because of the money, because the house is insured, and they're going to get the full value of that ring back. But because of what it symbolised, because of what it was representing, and that loss cannot be replaced. That ring can't come back again. Although, of course, what it symbolises is in broken, praise God. But in the same way, the tongues were given as a manifestation. And remember, I told you this last time in Acts 2. Why this particular gift? Because it was symbolic of the gospel going to different languages and nations. Symbolic of this, of this development that's going to happen in the building of the church. And the Samaritans are the next stage and they have the same manifestations. And Simon's there going, oh, manifestations, manifestations, isn't that nice? And it's like, no! This is a people who were rejected. This is a prodigal who has come home. This is the most significant of days. And you have completely missed the point. Which I think is a rebuke that the charismatic church desperately needs to hear. But anyway, that'll be a good sermon for another day. I might write that one down when I get home. So that's Acts chapter 8. And that is the Samaritans, through Peter using the keys of the kingdom to open up the kingdom to that people group, they have received the same spirit manifested in a, probably the same way, and they have now received that spirit, and they are now part of the same new covenant relationship, and are part of that same church that the Jews had established in Acts chapter 2. Now let's turn to Acts chapter 10. Now, I'm presuming, perhaps wrongly in some cases, but I'm going to have to, presume that you're relatively familiar with this story. I'm going to have to skim it because we've got other places to go and time is short. And I know some of you might want to be here until the, the night comes, draws in, but, but I don't. So, uh, let's, let's just skim it a little bit. But what happens in chapter 10 is that there is a guy called Cornelius, verse 1. He's a centurion of what is known as the Italian cohort. He is a devout man who feared God with all his household. Do you see the parallel here? 
we have the word devout used again. Not of Jews this time who are God-fearing Jews, but of a Gentile who is a God-fearing Gentile. It seems that this man, he feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and he prayed continually to God. So this guy Cornelius is a Gentile, but he is a saved Gentile. Right? He is a saved Gentile. And like the Jews of Acts chapter 2, he is a believer. But like the Jews in Acts chapter 2, he's not yet a part of the church because the Spirit has only gone to Jews and to Samaritans. How on earth could the Gentiles be let in? Anybody got a key that might let them in? I, I'm not hoping I'm not spoiling it. I hope you know the story. <laughs> and about a ninth hour of the day, he saw a vision. Ninth hour, by the way, will be counted from early in the morning. So this is middle of a day sort of time. In other words, he's having a vision in daytime. He's not, um, it's not that, that an angel appeared. It was a vision of an angel that he saw, but he was, uh, he, he was awake. So it wasn't a dream. It's a kind of like a, a manifestation of some sort, a vision during the daytime. Angel comes to him and says, Cornelius, what is it, Lord? He said to him, your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simeon, who is called Peter. He is lodging uh, with one Simeon at Tanner. Sorry, Simon, who is Peter, is lodging with Simeon at Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything, he sent them to Joppa. Uh, by the by the way, it's interesting to note that those under his leadership and those under his authority are people who believe as well. This is a man who not just believed himself, but was sharing the word to others. The next day, there goes the city. There's Peter on the housetop, and he's in the sixth hour, and he's praying. So he's in the middle of the day as well. He becomes hungry, and he wants something to eat. So they basically go to prepare food. And then when he is having food prepared for him, he too has a vision of some sort. And the heavens are opened, and there is a great sheet descending, being let down on its four corners. So like a bed sheet coming down from heaven, being held by the four corners. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And it goes to show already at this point, that though the old covenant has come to an end and they are now living new covenant Christianity, he has, Peter has the spirit of God and he is now a new nature and he is now permanently indwelt by the spirit. He doesn't fully understand what's happened. They need Paul to come along and clear a few things up. But right now Paul's still too busy killing them. But never mind. Um, so he's not going to eat these things because Mosaic law forbids it. And the voice came to him again a second time and says, well, God has made clean, do not call common. In other words, God has already declared these things to be clean by the, uh, the ending of the Mosaic law, by the, the death of Christ on the cross. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So Peter has it told to him once, he has it told to him twice, and he has it told to him a third time. Okay? Made very, very clear to him. There was not this issue with the Samaritans because of John chapter 4. But they are not going to let any dirty, stinking Gentiles come into their nice church. There's a court for Gentiles on the edges. They're not coming in. That's the way they would have viewed it. 
And then while he was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, the men who were sent by Cornelius turned up. And they asked he was there. And then when Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And he went down and, oh, what a surprise. There the guys are. And he says, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they say, Cornelius the centurion, just to emphasize he's a Gentile, an upright and God-fearing man, just to emphasize that he's saved, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, come to your house. And so he invites them to be his guest, and off they go. So the Spirit is directing this. Notice the references here continue to the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God is the unifier of the church. The Spirit of God is the unifier of the church. He is the one who is bringing this about. And so they go off, and the next day they get there, and Peter enters, Cornelius uh, falls down at his feet, and worships him, and Peter says, no, 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 you don't do that. So Cornelius is a man of faith, but he clearly has some education to to be uh, required still of him. And... um, Peter says, I'm too a man, and he talks with him, and he finds many persons gathered. In other words, we've got a gathering again. All the household, believers, fellow people that Cornelius has perhaps shared the gospel with. He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of of another nation. Isn't that terrible? That the laws of that time, and this is predominantly Pharisaic laws, are preventing them from from basically associating with Gentiles because they might become unclean. When the whole point of the Jewish nation was God's mission to go to the Gentiles. That's how warped everything had become. But I think Peter at this point understands that that was part of the misunderstanding of Mosaic law. When it comes to eating unclean animals, that was Mosaic law. So he's not prepared to do that. He needs a vision to tell him to do that because he doesn't understand that the law has ended. But this he knows he can do. Although he's clearly uncomfortable with it. (laughs) He's uncomfortable in being in the room and hanging out with a Gentile. That's why a vision was needed. That's why it was needed to be repeated three times. And... uh, But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came, and I asked them why you sent me. So Cornelius says, this is why. Four days ago, I was praying, la, 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 la. Um, And he retells the story. And he says, well, now we're all here in the presence of God to hear that you've been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is acceptable to him. Now, that's important. Peter has clearly been influenced by false Pharisaic teaching. But at this stage, with all that's happened, the spirit directing him, the vision to Cornelius. Cornelius has had a vision. He sent people. He has a vision to say that they're coming. He goes down and there they are, just as as the vision said it would be. And he comes back. And he can clearly see the spirit of God working through this man, who's clearly a God-fearing man. And so he can see, okay, you know, God works through other nations. It's not just through the Jews. And he's understanding that. As for the word he sent through Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened in Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So in other words, Cornelius is aware of Jesus Christ. He may well believe that Jesus Christ is Messiah. He's aware that Christ was anointed, that the Spirit had come upon Christ, like we spoke about how many weeks ago. 
And he's aware of that and he's aware of what's happened. And he says, we are, verse 39, we're witnesses of all that he did. In other words, Cornelius probably wasn't a witness to this all, but they were first-hand witnesses. And they put him to death, hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses. And we know elsewhere in the scripture that that ended up being over 500. Uh, who ate and drank with him as he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one anointed, appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him shall receive forgiveness of sins through his name. And so what he is proclaiming to this man who is devout, who is God-fearing, who is a believer in God, and who to some degree knows of Jesus Christ, he's filling in the dots for him. He's filling in the gaps. The guy's just trying to worship Peter. He needs gaps to be filled in for crying out loud, okay? He's filling in those gaps. And he's saying, you know, this is the who Jesus was. This is what it was all about. This is what happened. Raised from the dead. We saw it. We ate with him. He said, take the message out. And here we are, taking the message out. And this is the message of forgiveness of, from sin in his name, through his name. Yes? Now, I think at that point, Peter is proclaiming the gospel to him. Because he has come to realise that people like this were believers beforehand. Cornelius clearly was. And therefore, Cornelius can recognise who Jesus is and be a believer after the time of Christ. And then Peter has a problem with that. But Peter has not gone up at the request of the other apostles to lay hands on him for him to receive the Spirit. Peter is not going to open up the keys to the kingdom to welcome him in. Because he's a dirty, stinking Gentile. I shouldn't really be with you, but while I'm here, let me give the gospel and I'm going to go out and get out of here again. So what happens is, is God takes the keys from Peter and says, we're opening this door, pal, and we're doing it now. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard this word. Isn't that inconvenient? All these Gentiles suddenly receiving the Holy Spirit. And the believers from among the, un the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. So the Jews who had come up and travelled with Peter are amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And this is now the reason why we think they spoke in tongues in Acts 8. For, this is the gift of the Spirit poured out, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues, literally languages, and extolling God. So basically these guys, just as happened in Acts chapter 2, almost certainly as happened in Acts chapter 8, these guys who are Gentiles are now praising God in other languages that they couldn't have spoken in. Now can we just see here the contrast? In Acts chapter 2, Jewish dis Jewish men, the, the apostles, right, are hearing people who are Jews, but from Gentile nations, okay, they're coming, and these, these Jews from Gentile nations, rather, are hearing the apostles who've never learned these languages, don't know how to speak these languages, they're speaking in these languages, dialects even, so the apostles are speaking in Gentile languages so the Jews can hear them. Acts chapter 2, right? And they go, wow, they're speaking. Now, we know these languages because we live out there in Gentile territory. But they don't know these languages. How are they doing this, right? 
So now we have exactly the opposite happening. Now Peter the Apostle is not the one speaking a different language. He's the one hearing a different language. And the Gentiles presumably are speaking in a tongue that Peter understands. Perhaps Hebrew, I don't know. And they're speaking stuff that Cornelius could never have learned. And they're praising God in another language. He's like, this rings a bell. But Peter has gone from being the participant and the observers going, wow, to now Peter being the observant and going, wow, at the participants. It's complete role reversal. And so, this is clearly, he, he realizes at this point uh, what has happened. So, where were we? Verse 44. Um, uh, verse 45, 46. And they were hearing them speaking in tongues, extolling God. Then Peter declared, and, and this is, the model, this is a, a statement he would never have come to without the Spirit of God um, prompting him. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain some days. What happened in Acts chapter 8 was... Just don't worry, I'm an turn there. But what happened in Acts chapter 8 was that um, these people have been baptized. Let's go through. I'm going to try and find the verse now. Bear, bear one second. They have been baptized, verse 16 of chapter 8. They had, uh, the Spirit hadn't yet fallen on them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the Samaritans had had water baptism, right? And Peter then has to go and pray for them. And now, because he has the keys to the kingdom, the Spirit of God comes upon them, right? So they believed and they're baptized. But there's no indication of them having the Spirit in the same way. The disciples are open to this happening, so they go and pray. And Peter, has got the keys to the kingdom, he prays and they receive the Spirit. They speak in tongues. They've got the same Spirit. They're now part of the church. Never repeated. Now in Acts chapter 10, it's the other way around. They weren't going to baptize them with water. They didn't want them as part of their club. But God takes the initiative. He gives them the Holy Spirit so that Peter can only go... What can you do? That's the same spirit that I've got. It's the same. This is what happened to us in Acts chapter 2. It's just the same thing again. Notice the lack of rushing wind. The church has been inaugurated. This isn't an inauguration of a church. It's an expansion of the church. And so now they have a water baptism afterwards because we accepted the Samaritans' water baptism and we now need to make sure that they have the same spirit and they're in the new covenant and they're part of the church. In Acts chapter 10, they're not going to water baptize those Gentiles, but now they have the spirit. What else can we do? Now, we don't have time to turn there. Gosh, we're completely out of time. Um, I'm going to finish off, sorry. Um, but just note that when he goes back and tells the disciples and he defends his actions, he basically turns around to them and says, what could I do? They have the same spirit as us. And this, guys, we will talk about again in the morning in a few months' time, because this is the basis of Ephesians chapter 4, that we all have the same spirit. We've seen it in chapter 2 already, the foundation of the church. We're going to see it again in chapter 4, that, the, found, that the, found, the, the basis for unity in the church is that we all have the same spirit. Now, to us today, 
that might mean something quite different and, and that's perfectly valid but historically what it meant was Jew, Samaritan, Gentile have all received the same spirit so they're all part of that one same body now the last passage to turn to is Acts chapter 19 and this is the one that trips people up sometimes let's just go through it real quick I'm aware I'm running out of time yeah, I really am. I'm totally out of time. I could do this. I could wrap this up next time, couldn't I? Do it? You know what? Let's do that. Let's do this next time. I've got uh, some other stuff I want to mention. Regard just one more gap to fill in. So we'll do two bits of gap filling in one sermon next time. So Acts chapter 19, you can read it by yourselves. It's a bizarre little group of people and people often trip over, up, up over this one. And it does lead us into an interesting area of discussion which typically does blow people's minds a little bit. So... Not because it's radical, but just because I haven't really thought about it. So we'll, we'll talk about that next time when we come to Acts 19. But I hope that when we look at 2, 8 and 10, you get this picture, you get this, this, this outline. That, you know, after Acts chapter 10, when do we see the Spirit of God manifesting through tongues, indicating that he has come into a Gentile ever again? Answer, we never see it again. You just don't see it again. What's happened, happens. What happened is, in Acts chapter 2, tongues, languages literally, I prefer to say languages, it's more accurate. Languages were given to the Jews as a sign because it represents the gospel going out to other nations. Nations, remember, in the Greek and in Hebrew is the same word as the word for Gentiles. Gentiles literally means other nations other than Israel. And so it's a sign that it's going to go out to those nations. And that sign is then repeated as it does go to those other nations. And once it has gone out and the church has been expanded, once the church has been, the walls of the church has been broadened and these people have come in, there's no need for these manifestations to routinely come. Now, we know that the gift of tongues continued in the church. And I suspect that different people groups... Uh, when they would often come, the gospel would come to them and manifestations would come to those people groups that, hey, this is the real deal. Perhaps that happened in that way. We know it continued. But we certainly have no other repetition of it. As far as the history of Acts is concerned, the Gentiles are now part of the church. And praise God for that. Um, maybe we'll talk a bit more about tongues next time and just finish that off. Because I know people have questions. But So next week, Acts chapter 19, we're going to talk about the filling of the Spirit. And we might sneak in a little bit about tongues as well. And just It's not really part of the series properly, but we'll deal with a few things there. So that's next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, what we saw this morning, we kind of see tonight. We talked this morning about the mystery that Paul had revealed to him. This mystery of, uh, of the gospel of the building of the church, of this one new man. And here we see that happening historically before us tonight. And I hope, Lord, that this would have cleared things up and wrapped things up in people's minds and we see how this happened. And we just, we thank you, Lord, that we now live in this new covenant era where we're not people who are saved and then have to wait for the Spirit to come, but we're people who are saved and have the Spirit because we are a people, a, a nation, a a, a grouping who have already received the gospel, already received the spirit. And now for we believe we receive your spirit and he's the seal that you will complete your work. That future hope of grace that we have, that you will complete your work in us. And so we thank you for him. 
We thank you for the gift of your spirit. And we, we thank you for this revelation of how it happened in the world historically at that time. And Lord, we just, I pray that as people hear this message, the, their understanding of scripture will grow, their, their propensity to false doctrine would be lessened, and uh, their reliance upon your word will grow too. That we might ever be more in step with your spirit and glorify you through our transformation. Amen.